Welcome to Talking Through the Numbers, a podcast produced by Wilder Research. Our goal, to provide insight on significant issues, to combine sound information with expert knowledge, to enrich our understanding of things that affect our communities and our world. I'm Paul Matesic, Executive Director of Wilder Research. In this episode, our topic is data disaggregation. And two experts have come to the studio for this conversation. Kaying Yang is the Director of Programs and Partnerships with the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. Kaying began her career as a community organizer and executive manager providing social services and advocacy for protection of refugees and immigrants. In the mid-90s, she served as executive director for the only national Southeast Asian American advocacy organization in the United States based in Washington, D.C. Nationally, Kaying has worked in coalition with Asian American civil rights groups to address alarming gaps in educational achievements, lack of desegregated data, and economic and health disparities that plagued large sectors of the Southeast Asian American community. To address these issues at institutional levels, she co-founded several organizations, such as the National Asian Pacific Women's Forum, the Asian and Pacific Islander American Scholarship Fund, and she worked closely with the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Kaying is a recipient of a 2019 Bush Fellowship from the Bush Foundation. Nicole Martin Rogers is a senior research manager who has been with Wilder Research since 2001. She provides research and evaluation services to a wide range of programs and organizations, including community-based applied research and evaluation using a range of qualitative and quantitative methods and evaluation frameworks. She specializes in culturally responsive approaches and supporting organizations and community groups to use data to inform their decisions around program improvement, strategic operations of an organization, public policy advocacy, and other actions. Nicole has a bachelor's degree in psychology and sociology from the University of Minnesota, a master's degree in public policy from the Humphrey School at the University of Minnesota, and a doctorate in sociology from the University of Minnesota. She's currently the president of the Minnesota Evaluation Association and also serves on the boards for the St. Paul Children's Collaborative and the Tawahi Foundation. So again, welcome. Our topic is uh, data disaggregation, which may sound like a complex statistical term, but basically I think it refers to constructing more detailed categories for race or other characteristics of uh, people who live in our communities. But Nicole, what is data disaggregation? What does that term mean? Yeah, well, you, you got it right, Paul. I mean, it's pretty much um, taking a broad category and breaking it into smaller or more detailed uh, categories, subcategories. So the example of race that you gave, if we take the broad racial category of Asian American, that can be broken down into a lot of different cultural groups like Hmong, uh, Karen, Khmer, Chinese, Asian Indian. Um, same thing is true for American Indian. You know, there's um, in Minnesota, uh, many different tribes are represented, Ojibwe and Dakota. So all of these racial groups can be broken out basically into smaller subcategories that are sometimes of more 
interests in terms of whatever um, social issue or variable we're looking at. Okay. And I know I know race is probably the, the major characteristic we'll discuss today, and it's probably the one that's most uh, in the news and discussed right now, locally and nationally. Can you talk a bit about how race and ethnicity has been measured? Who decides how to define it? What data are used to measure it? Sure. Well, one of the main groups that defines how um, we think about race in the country is the U.S. Census Bureau. And obviously, they both define the categories that we measure race by in this country. And they also try to respond to the current social and political trends about what groups of people we care about and therefore measure. So um, race is a social construct. It's not a biological fact. You can't measure someone's DNA and determine what race they are based on that DNA. And it's something that changes over time. And it really should change over time to reflect the current social and political realities that we're facing. And so the Census Bureau is one organization, but also any group that really does a survey and asks someone about their race has to decide at some point how, what categories they're going to use in a healthcare setting. We have to ask people sometimes about their race in an education setting. You know, we ask people, uh, parents about their child's um, race and ethnicity. So there's a lot of different um, institutions that measure race. Is coming up with additional categories, uh, disaggregating data, more important than it used to be in either of your opinions? I don't know if it's more important than it used to be, but it's definitely gotten more attention recently than it used to be. And we have better approaches for how to do it and more advocates like Guy Ying and the Coalition for Asian American Leaders and other groups like that that are advocating for data disaggregation in different settings. So I think there's a lot more attention. And why, why is this? Why has more attention come to this topic? What's, what's caused the change? Well, I think that we all know that the changing demographics in the state of Minnesota, but all over the United States, really require that we have better data on um, each of our communities and uh, distinguish one one group and one individual from another. And so I think just by having the racial category now is not enough. Um, people who come from Southeast Asia are very different from people who come from uh, South Asia and or China. People who come from Somalia have different needs than uh, people who come from the Caribbeans. And so I think that to understand our community and to ensure that uh, the disparities are not hidden, we need to have this kind of data. I think it's good for all of us in the state of Minnesota to really understand who is in the, the state. Um, uh, at Cal, the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, we work on education issues. And so for us, I think to, to ensure that all students are successful, we need to know who are those students and not just um, hide them under the racial category anymore. Sure. Well, you're bringing us skying into a uh, topic that I was hoping we could cover in this episode. For research purposes, for political purposes, for community purposes, uh, what are the advantages of having more disaggregated data, maybe starting with research purposes. Why does it matter whether data are organized into more categories? What are the advantages? 
Well, it's there's not always an advantage to organizing data into more categories. Really, what as social scientists, what we're looking for is we want to understand what are the meaningful categories that help us explain whatever social issue or situation or problem we're trying to understand. And so if we ask a student and understand that they're Asian American, that doesn't necessarily help us understand their needs or preferences or assets, um, community strengths that they might bring to an educational setting. Whereas if we know that they're Hmong, that might help us understand both some of their language and cultural needs in the school, as well as um, how to engage them through their community with being successful in education. So that's, um, in that particular case, it might be helpful to just aggregate data. In other cases, it might not be helpful. And I suppose it's not just one constant invariant set of categories. It can change a bit over time, depending on exactly. the needs for information. Exactly. Well, if you think even about gender categories, up until very recently, we always, almost always used binary gender categories, male and female. And um, more recently now, we've started um, recognizing and understanding that there's people that don't identify just as male or female that also have um, a whole range of different gender identities. And depending on the population that you're serving, it may be more appropriate to just add one more category, like transgender. Or if you're serving a population that you know has a lot of gender variation, you might want to add three or four or five different categories to help people really um, sure. reflect their identity. Sure. Yep. What about organizations uh, serving the community or the yeah. communities themselves? Sure. I, I, I agree completely with what Nicole was uh, just saying. And um, I'm not a researcher, but I think from our lived experience and also practical um, services and advocacy, I think breaking down student achievement data by race and ethnicity will uncover uh, trends um, and some bright spots and disparities as well. And making... Really, we're trying to make the data more actionable for educators, uh, families, and policymakers, um, because I think that they also need this data in order to better um, e equip themselves to ensure that resources are, are targeted appropriately to different communities. Sure. Have you seen good examples of that, where they've taken these data, oh, made yeah. them action, uh, taken action? I think beyond education, hospitals and government agencies have used data to determine how many bilingual staff to mm -hmm. hire. Um, in other states, I know that disaggregated data can lead to protection, uh, protection of voting rights uh, by providing um, mandated translations of materials um, for different pockets of communities, including uh, large populations like Chinese in the East Coast and the West Coast. So these are the practical ways that policymakers can use this data. Nicole, any more thoughts about that? The well, use of the information, the act, making it actionable, and actually getting action to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, again, just be um, sort of aware of what the current political and social realities are and line up the categories that you're asking about with the things that matter to the people and the community that's affected by the issue, um, which is going to be different in every case. So there's not one right answer, or one right way to do this. It's really, it is a really contextual um, problem for social scientists and um, advocates to figure out. Sure. So our census approaches 2020 census has been in the news quite a bit either of you have thoughts about how this data disaggregation process is important for the upcoming census 
Well, one thing is um, we know that there have been budget cuts to the census, which makes it difficult to fund outreach efforts to make sure that groups that tend to be underrepresented or undercounted because they don't participate or aren't um, found to participate in different ways, that, that um, that's going to be really important for us in Minnesota to make sure that we're focusing on outreaching to those communities and helping them to feel um, safe and understanding what the uses are of the census and why it's important for them to participate. And then also for some groups, it's really important to help them understand that the way that they get their group counted is they have to actually write in um, their um, cultural group or ethnicity on the other specify line when they are asked for more detail. Um, for example, if they're um, African-American or um, African-born and they don't see their particular group or Romo or whatever it might be um, represented, um, there's an other specify line that they have to know that they actually have to write their, their group in. And that's how we will know the size of different groups that maybe aren't reflected with the boxes on the census. And so there is some, uh, you know, outreach to communities and instruction that's really required in order to um, effectively count people at this desegregated um, way. Sure. Yeah. And I just want to add that um, I think that historically the census did does want to get a um, country of origin from people. And, um, you know, I, I th in fact, the census already desegregates some of the data because they, you know, the census can track how many ethnic groups are coming and or are in the United States. Um, but I think for Minnesota, it's very important because our populations look very different from the, the rest of the national uh, population. And so, uh, while the census is very important, it desegregates large populations that's represented na nationwide. Uh, in Minnesota, we also have to be mindful that we have one of the largest uh, Liberian communities here, one of the largest Somalia community, and the largest Southeast Asian population. I mean, in fact, Southeast Asians represent about 60% of the Asian Pacific um, uh, Islander community here in the state of Minnesota, which is very different from um, the East Coast and the West Coast. And so while the census is really great at doing some of that work right now, we need to ensure that our local re researchers also understand the diversity within the state of Minnesota. Sure. Okay. Let me ask you a question, uh, a different type, coming at this from a different angle. But would you say that sometimes in the past, the available data have been used by the dominant group in any society, United States, other places, uh, in ways that have not been appropriate, that might have produced some systemic inequities, but that uh, data disaggregation offers an opportunity to correct that or counter that? Well, I absolutely think that uh, data has been used, data about disparities has been used to reinforce stereotypes and reinforce um, current, you know, systems of power that set some people up to be more likely to be successful than other people in education or employment systems or housing or whatever it might be. Um, I think that data disaggregation isn't necessarily a solution for that. And whether we're using broad categories or disaggregated categories, we always have to keep in mind the narrative around what is it that we're talking about in terms of a disparity and what was the cause of that disparity. And we can't assume that um, 
people understand that explanatory chain of how we get back to a system that created housing disparities that wasn't because some people are better at being homeowners than others. It was because there was a system set up to allow some people to become more successful at homeownership than others. And so that's something that we have to make sure to just include in our narrative when we're talking about disparities sure. is that data might be a tool for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think very specifically, like the Asian model minority is a great example of how um, aggregated data can be used to pit uh, racial communities against each other. And um, if we just look at the aggregate data for Asian Americans, it, it looks like we're doing better than any other groups. And in fact, in, fact, in some areas, we're even surpassing the white community. Um, I think this is very dangerous and harmful to all communities because, again, it hides the disparities within our community. But on the other hand, um, uh, Asian Americans are often not included in equity discussion because the data doesn't show that we are experiencing those kinds of disparities. Um, and I, I, I don't want to focus just on disparities, but I also to say that when we disaggregate data, we also see the assets that people bring to this country. For example, uh, our latest uh, refugee population, in fact, they are e in EL, but they also speak several other languages. And so it's the multiculturalism and multilingual assets that we that people bring to this country, and yet we're not really seeing that as an asset. By desegregating data, we will start to understand that a Koran student may speak Thai, their native language, and Burmese, right? Uh, and or a Hmong student could speak Thai, Lao, Hmong, English, uh, sometimes Japanese and Chinese. And so uh, that kind of asset teachers and uh, and policymakers need to understand so that we can really be a strong state in the state, uh, in Minnesota because our uh, collective economy depends on the well-being of these young students. Sure. They're very powerful examples of how these data could have an important role in policy, funding, programming, representing underrepresented groups, communities, and so on. Any more thoughts about that? Um, I, I also think um, that when I, I, I speak a lot about the Asian American population, but I also have colleagues in the African community who are saying that if it's if we just uh, measure or uh, collect data on the black or african-american category then we also lose the english learners um, and also the um, large numbers of um, refugees who are coming from other uh, countries in and africa and uh, I, I think that we need to offer the subcategories for people to check off, right, and to self-identify. Um, I think people should not be f fearful of data desegregation. They should see this as um, the ability for policymakers and um, people who are leaders to really uh, do more with, with the limited, limited resources that is out there. Sure. It, it gives a tool to them to, use, yeah. to do more with limited resources. And there's a lot of measures already to protect data privacy, and so people should not be concerned about that. Okay. Well, speaking about what people might want to do if people have an interest in promoting the gathering of and use of better, more useful data with more detailed categories, is there something you recommend that they do? Um, well, just for education purposes uh, and for the state of Minnesota, we did help pass a law called the Arcades Act uh, count in um, 2016. And so if people want to know more about this, they can go to the Minnesota Department of Education website. And it's kind of hidden under the families and uh, uh, let's see, families and um, uh, special projects, but it's called all accounting all students, and it has all the fact sheets about why 
the law is uh, um, has been passed and what is being going to be collected, and that it is optional for parents to provide that kind of information. The other source is really maybe the White House Initiative for on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, because under both President Obama and President Trump, they have made data desegregation a priority and. The, um, and the Asian American community for the last two decades have really been spearheading data desegregation. So I think these are the two at least sites to look at the national and then also at the local level and what's happening here. Yeah, um, a couple thoughts. One is I always use Minnesota Compass at mncompass.org, which is a source of information about um, different racial and ethnic groups, as well as immigrant communities in Minnesota, and um, can get good information about the numbers and the relative size of different groups in different geographic um, areas within the state. So that would help me to understand as I'm going in to maybe do a survey with a certain city or county of what ethnic groups I might encounter. So I could think about, you know, what languages I'd want to translate the survey into. Those are some of the considerations as a social scientist. And then the other project I want... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, Minnesota Compass, of course, is a great source of information for a variety of purposes developed by Wilder Research with the support of many, many foundation partners. Right. Yeah. And there's um, information about education, um, housing, employment, uh, and all of these topics are um, have some desegregation by um, race and geographic sub areas of the state. So yeah, it was a very helpful data source. The other source I wanted to mention is East Metro Pulse, which you can find out more about at eastmetropulse.org. And that's a study that we did recently with St. Paul and Minnesota Foundations. And I just thought that that was a really great example of how to disaggregate um, racial and ethnic categories into more relevant cultural groups for people in a survey, not because we were intending to necessarily report back out on those groups, but just because the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundations wanted to make sure that people in the community that were participating in the survey could see themselves represented and to reflect the major cultural and ethnic groups that we have in our community was one way to do that. So that's a good example of um, how to do desegregation well. Well, thanks. You both offered some great examples of what people can do and how they can get more information about the topic. Any parting comments for our podcast friends? Well, I really just want to reemphasize the high quality detailed data is essential to understanding community needs and challenges. And it is vital to securing public um, and private resources to help uh, communities that have needs. And so uh, it's very important that going forward, we need to d dive deeper into data desegregation. We need to do more and not less. Um, and we can't be fearful of what the data tells us. Sure. And in fact, we need to embrace it. Okay. Well, thank you to both of you, Nicole Martin-Rogers and Guying Yang. We appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you. To everyone, please visit our website, www.wilderresearch.org for more information on this topic and others. If you have suggestions for a future podcast, please let us know. I'm Paul Matesic from Wilder Research, and I look forward to talking through the numbers with you on other topics. Mm -hmm.